You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Hello, hello, everybody. It's Greenhorn Radio Time, radio about the world of the young farmers, the ever-expanding, always interesting, not totally easy, but definitely but definitely worth it world of young farmers. I'm joined today on the phone by Molly out in California. Molly, are you there? Hi, Severin. Hi. Hi. How is it going out there? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the air today. Oh, it's wow. In California, it's we're getting a little coming, bit of a I think, cool. But I'm very happy that it's finally the day. Yeah. Uh, California you've been going busy, great. We're busy, getting a little busy. bit of a cool I've been, I just checked out your website. And, man, what an ambitious little trio you are. Thank you. You want to introduce the um, you want to introduce the unique format and particular history of your own little farm there? I'd love to. So Dinnerbell Farm, uh, which everyone can check out at dinnerbellfarm.com, um, is a partnership of three friends. So it's myself and a man named Paul Glowoski and another man named Cooper Funk, and the three of us met while attending. Um, the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems at UC Santa Cruz six-month apprenticeship in organic agriculture. So for six months, we lived there on an amazing educational farm and learned the ins and outs of organic farming and gardening. And um, that was in 2006, and the three of us decided that one day maybe we would want to have a farm together. And so uh, for years and years we dreamed, and then for years and years we searched for a farm. And finally in 2010 we broke ground in uh, a little hamlet called Chicago Park, which is part of Grass Valley up in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. And because of the type of land that we farm here, we decided to focus heavily on animal agriculture as a way to um, build the soils. The soils are mountain soils and need um, some attention. So uh, we focused on raising, we raise uh, heritage chickens out all over the place on the pasture. Ooh, chickens. Yeah. Well, first, uh, many questions are exploding out of my head, but great. Uh, first of all, what kind of chickens? The breeds. We yeah. raise two heritage breeds. One is called the Naked Neck, and just as the name sounds, the chicken it has no feathers on its neck. And this breed, uh, there's I've read differing 
um, <clears throat> accounts of its origins. Some people say Hungary. It's also called the Transylvanian naked neck. They're also called Turkins. So clearly some Eastern Europe. Uh, and they're incredibly hardy, despite the fact that they have 40% less feather coverage than most chickens. They're able to withstand very cold temperatures. We had snows up here earlier this spring, and they would be out trumps and about in the snow foraging. And they're also really well adapted to uh, high, te high temperatures. So we raise the naked neck, which are delicious as well. So not only are they excellent foragers and perform really well in the pasture, they taste very good, which is important, of course. Um, I like to tell people heritage animals. Heritage animals were bred for flavor, not just to grow fat and big and have giant breasts. They were, they were raised to be good on the table. So we raise the naked neck, and we also raise a breed called the New Hampshire, which is an American-developed breed and uh, is a little bit more plump than the naked neck, grows a little bit faster, uh, but we feel it performs really well here for us also. So those and are, are people into this? I mean, like, um, I'm, I raise two different birds. I raise K-22s and I raise Freedom Rangers. And yeah. the Freedom Rangers are not that, they're not that heritage. They're, like, from the 19th right. century in France. Right. And they're, they're, they're amazing. Really I mean, they're, they're just such a pleasure to raise, and they don't just sit there and shit and... You know, all these great things from a, from a, you know, from a farming perspective, I'm totally excited. But uh, when it comes to talking about it with customers, is it your experience that, that customers are ready to, to talk about the breed of animal, and, or, or how, do you, how do you engage in that? People are really interested in breed. I think we've um, been really fortunate to have some pretty mainstream um, accounts like, you know, Food Inc., et cetera, about that sort of exposed what is happening in the poultry industry, and people really want to make a new choice. And we put a lot of effort and time into, into you know, into providing <clears throat> information about the food that people are purchasing. I mean, some people would call it marketing. We just feel like we're telling the story of the food and providing them information so that they can make food choices that are appropriate for themselves and for their families. So we do, you know, we really play at the heritage. And what we really like to explain to people is that we're choosing heritage animals, and it's important for a lot of small farmers to choose heritage animals because we're often farming on more marginal land. And heritage breeds of all animals, domesticated animals, were developed to meet the various conditions of more marginal situations. So you can go to the American Livestock Breed Conservancy and tell them your specific conditions, and they'll find breeds that will work well for you. So we really like to tell people that this is part of the success of our farming system, these choosing these animals. And then we say, okay, and here's some tips on how to cook it. It'll be a little bit different. Um, and the flavor is absolutely hands down what keep people coming back. I mean, people come to us and say, uh, you know, older folks will say, oh, I haven't had chicken like that since I was a little kid. Or people will say, oh, that's like the chicken I ate in when I used to live in Brazil. So it's like this sort of nostalgic thing because it, it tastes like a chicken's supposed to taste. So people yeah, are it's really... it's funny when you can blow people's minds like that. It's kind of powerful. 
it's really powerful, and it's for us. It's just sort of was encouraging. I mean, we, you know, all farmers, you got to start out. You pick a product. You don't know if it's going to do well, and it's totally based on what's going to sell and what your feedback you're going to get from the community that you're growing food for. And so it's really awesome to be getting such positive feedback. So we feel like it was a good choice for us, you know, despite the fact that they take almost, they take twice as long to get reach harvest weight than, you know, more conventional breeds of chicken. And they take long, and are they good foragers? Because what I found is my, the K-22s are just great at eating grass. Like, they just run outside, and I don't feed them in the morning. I wait for a little while so that they're, they use up their morning appetite on grass. Yeah, we do the same. Uh, do yeah, the they same. forage great. They're so and excited. They, they forage great, and they're, they're changing the pasture. They're just, like, we, we move them every single day, so they're constantly on a new piece of ground in these large, they're not enclosed in, in range shelters. They're in these big paddocks where they can run around, and uh, they tear it up. I mean, they're like a little lawnmower. So based on what we observe, they're definitely eating. We, we estimate they're getting around 30 to 40% of their diet from forage, which is incredible for a chicken. It's hard to really say. It's, you know, that's another good use for extension money is I would love to have somebody who has scientific time uh, to, you know, figure out the exact ratio and, you know. Yeah, I agree. We feel really fortunate. Our local extension agent ha- is very animal ag focused, and I'm not sure if that's his own directive or if that's someone else, but I agree. I mean, most of the information that we get is just word of mouth from other farmers, and I think that there's a huge, huge need for more research. I mean, we would definitely benefit from it. Yeah, more more uh, more proselytizing pastured poultry, uh, charismatic people is good. Yeah. But then the other thing is this: this the science and and the specific breed information and and totally. one place I know about that I would love to tell everybody who's listening who's thinking about pastured poultry would be uh, think about the American Pastured Poultry Association. It's called APA. And they have a newsletter. It's called Appa Grit, and they put together this um, really awesome compendium of best practice on pastured poultry. And Karma Gloss from Kingbird Farm wrote one of the essays, and she's just like totally amazing. She broods her own. She incubates and broods her own layers, but right. she and a whole bunch of other people have put together what they know. So that's one place. Yeah, but, uh, Appa is a huge resource for us and the network of folks that we've connected to through APA, as well as Acres. Acres is great stuff about pasture management. Acres USA out of Texas? Acres USA, yeah. Uh, okay, so now you, I got, we got the chicken covered, and that's the, like, um, pretty not that much investment, kind of a lot of feed costs, but then good, good price per pound. What other enterprises have you got going? We also grow um, specialty vegetables, so we grow uh, ethnic hot and sweet peppers. We have, I calculated out recently, we have like miles of of peppers growing. Um, But we love peppers, and I think it's important. We all sort of just picked something that we loved to start growing. We didn't want to grow a little bit of a lot of things. We don't have a ton of open cropland, a lot of our farms in pasture. So we grow a lot of peppers, and we grow okra, and we grow a lot of uh, 
salad mix and cutting greens. Uh, locally, it gets quite warm in the, win- in the summertime, and a lot of producers don't grow leafy greens, and so we're trying to figure out how to grow leafy greens in the summer. I tell people, if you don't have a niche crop, you've got to pick a niche season. So oh. we're growing lots of greens, and we grow cut flowers. And uh, we have a heritage apple orchard, which we're sort of trying to restore. Uh, and those are the main things we grow. Well, what, hold on now. This, this whole greens in the summer thing, I'm kind of coming to the end of my lettuces. Yep. And feeling sad about it, but I'm distracted right. by all these other things that I can eat. Right. And so I'm not that sad. What, what are the, <laughs> like, what are the, other than just irrigate a lot and have really well-drained yeah. soil? Well, yeah, so you have to think about how you're irrigating and how you can sort of maximize just natural cooling effects. So part of what we did, we have very a very dynamic landscape. It's the foothills, so it's all, we don't have a piece of flat ground. It's all rolling. We also have a lot of water. We're in um, the Bear River watershed, and we've got ponds and creeks and springs, and so using various slopes and, you know, we're in the forest as well. There's a lot of ponderosa pines and black oaks. And so just using the microclimates on our farm, we're, we've found fields that stay significantly cooler than the rest of our farm just based on how the air moves and the sun. So that's a big part, just selecting a location that's going to stay a bit cooler. Um, and then, you know, experimenting with overhead irrigation, drip irrigation, shade costs sometimes, varietals. I mean, a huge thing is just choosing heat-tolerant varietals. And uh, so far, so good. We'll see how, how it goes, you know. Yeah, the dog days are just starting. They really are, so. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking in with you about that one. I'm going to be out West Coast uh, in later in the year. And I'm going to try and come up and visit you guys and bother you and see how this hot lettuce situation went. Oh, we would love for you to come up. But you're not selling down into the bay, are you? You're selling up in local mostly. We sell sell a good bit into the bay. We we sell chicken to just one restaurant in San Francisco, which has been a really great relationship that we sell. Wait, you're allowed to name drop. Who's your restaurant? Our restaurant is The Slanted Door. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're... Um, Fancy And we really, you know, I really want to commend them for understanding the real cost of local sustainably produced food. You know, we like to... T- it's like apples and oranges. You can't, you can't even really compare the prices because they're just a completely different product, and they totally get it. So they... Um, we sell almost 100 chickens to them a week, which is great. So a lot of the chicken you eat, if you go to eat there or at their little takeout place out the door, will be from our farm. And they're really interested in learning all about how we raise them. They want us to, like, come and talk to their kitchen staff, and they just want, you know, the story to be a part of, of how they're preparing the chicken there. And then we also do a, um, a chicken club, so similar to... A, CSA, a community-supported agriculture um, box or meat CSA, we do uh, a club. So people, 
If you live in the East Bay or in San Francisco, you can go online to our website and order chicken, and we deliver once a month. So a delivery is actually coming up this Thursday, and we drop off to um, three drop sites throughout two in the East Bay and one in San Francisco, and then people come and pick up the chicken, which they've already very easily purchased online. So that's a way for us to direct market into the Bay Area. Um, which has been really See, this great. This is the thing. Uh, I, I would just like to take a little moment to clarify because you said this thing about you know marketing, and yeah. sometimes I, I realize that I live a little bit in agriculture bubble because for me marketing means and for agriculture marketing means how do you sell your product, right. and it doesn't mean like an ad campaign or you know a model or paying a million dollars to a post-industrial town in order to get across your fake fake mission of Levi Strauss, it, it means how do you create a vehicle and a vessel for commerce? And you're talking about your chicken club. Well, that is a marketing strategy, and it's a new format. And the CSA also is a format that's only 20 years old and has been such a compelling format um, and has allowed so many farms to flourish where they, where they uh, have, once they've accepted that model, I think that we got to reclaim this marketing term and clarify to all of our non-farming uh, listeners and to our larger community that marketing is not just bullshit PR. Uh, you're absolutely right. It anyway, is about, that was my small especially rant. for small farmers, and so for small farmers that are listening, like push the envelope. Think of how you can be creative and get your products, this, these things that you've invested your time and your money and your life into, and, uh, and, and get those to people who are really going to appreciate them and who are going to understand the real costs of them, and I think that will just grow from there, because I, there's, we still have a ton of work to do to, you know, create these new marketing structures to provide food affordably to communities that have been excluded from the local food movement, and... You know, I think there's just there's so many different models that are out there. I really think tapping into you know tap into the community that you have already and network from there, and it's really incredible sort of the, the different models we've seen happening. You know, we deliver when we do our our chicken drop in San Francisco, we we go to um, Mission Pie, which is this amazing coffee shop bakery that is so supportive of local ag and is working with local high school students and just really doing a lot of great stuff. And there's a person who does a bread CSA the same day we're there. So they open their kitchen up to this person who then bakes bread and has a community of people he sells his bread to. So there's just so many models, and it's it really isn't um, – I, I think a lot of times farmers get – especially small farmers, like the whole business side can be a bit daunting. And I know for, for me it was a big transition to like suddenly have to sell stuff. I felt like there's all this whole level of generosity and sharing and bartering and community um, in, in food production on a small scale. And so sometimes it can feel like challenging for me to like really sort of sell the stuff I have. But, but there are but people there's a community of people who want to buy the stuff and they want to know the story and they you know we don't have to sort of gloss things over we just can be really real about what we're doing and there's a huge 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 untapped market of people who want this food and want it in these untraditional ways you know 
People so. want it, and we have to figure it out, and we have to figure out how to get it to them. Yeah, and we have to really also talk to people about the regulations that make it challenging for us to do these sorts of things so that we can get you know, our laws adjusted so that it's easier for small farms to provide food to people. And, you know, it's just, it can be a real challenge to interpret some of these regulations because they're just designed for a whole nother scale of agriculture. And Well, so, okay, Molly, so speaking of regulations, here's another whole little kettle of fish I'm about to open up. You ready? Just busting them open. Bust them open. <laughs> so, um, insurance. Now, my friend up in New York State, she does pastured poultry and turkeys. She does Christmas turkeys, and she does them every year, and she has an exempt, you know, you can, very state to state, basically everybody should know, very state to state what the rules are on, for on-farm processing, meaning killing your own chickens on your own land without stressing them out and carrying them somewhere else, and, uh, but you're only allowed to do so many in New York State, and she does much, much less than that limit. But her insurer informed her that they would not issue her insurance anymore if she um, continued to process on farm. And then I started kind of getting that under my hat, and this only happened this week on the email. But then I, then I went around and poked around, and turns out a whole bunch of other people have been kicked off of their insurance because they're doing raw milk. Yeah. And, Oof. you know, there's not that many insurance companies. Farm Family is one. Johnny Walker is one. They're... There aren't that many who focus on agricultural insurance, and they're taking positions that are, they're based on, like, being, they're afraid of liability from food safety issues. Of course. But they're basically taking positions that are even more conservative than the law. Huh. Uh, in terms of the risks they want to take uh, for their own business. And so this is a major new, new problem that... Uh, are facing and folks I'm friends with and who, you know, who run really good businesses are like, ah, another problem. Sure. They keep coming sometimes. I we fortunately have not had as an issue with, with uh, insurance. I mean, we, we have to do some of our processing off-farm because to sell at our farmer's markets and to the, you know, the middle, the wholesale places we sell to, they require USDA um, inspection. So we're really fortunate to have like a family-run fodder facility close to us, which we use. But we, you know, I don't know. It's such a big thing that like these minor, I don't, they're not minor, but there are these monumental roadblocks. And it well, they're monumental about roadblocks, but Molly, I would say they're also business opportunities, you know? Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that is just what I was going to say, is that is there's innovative ways of getting around them. And I think, you know, getting talking to other farmers is a great way of doing it because people have really creative ways of, of doing things. And, you know, in our, our community, the local um, community college worked with Cooperative Extension, and they created a mobile processing facility. So you can rent this processing facility, bring it onto your farm, they're working on getting, having it be a USDA-inspected facility. So there are, like, on a very local level, there are ways to adjust things. You can, on a local level, countywide level, um, pass legislation that would enable farmers to, you know, have different regulations to sell at lo your local farmer's markets. I know there's some movement 
towards that in our community, and Santa Cruz just passed that law, I think. Is that right, Santa Cruz? Where you can now process on-farm and sell at your farmer's market, which is huge. Uh, so, yeah, I, I agree that they're, they're, they're just innovative ways of getting around things. I, I also think it's important to be able to, to a certain extent, play by the book or, and certainly know what, what the book says, um, because you don't want to get yourself into a position you can't get out of. You know, I think I, I, I don't. I think it's fine. People can make their own choices for their farms, uh, but knowing the regulation is important, and then knowing well, how to be creative with that regulation. Well, and often, you know, what? Thank goodness they write those things down. That's what's nice about regulations is it's written down. So there are down. some interpretations. You know, the inspector can interpret things differently. So that's totally. one thing to be aware of. Um, and then sometimes they're also, they were written in, like, 1842. And, like, right. the regulations around rabbits is, like, talks about wearing smocks. Yeah. You know, they, they don't, instead of an apron, they talk about smock. A smock, yeah. And everyone's like, what's a smock? <laughs> no, I think rabbits are actually, in California, I think rabbits are actually classified as poultry. So that may be... Yeah, in, yes, in California they're classified as poultry, but in New York they're classified as exotic. Oh, yeah, exotics. Yeah, so they're, like, in the same category as pheasants and ostriches. Ostrich and rabbit, very similar. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. We're getting so giggly, but what I really need we to talk about giggly. is the, the unusual point, format point of having three people. Because, you know, a lot of times it's intimidating if you're a young woman, say, and you've done your apprenticeships and you're being a good girl and you're getting strong and you've figured out how to have a social life that changes every summer and you are confident in your farming and you're ready to become your own farmer, but you don't have a husband. And it yeah. seems like you look around and all the farms you ever worked at were run by a husband and wife team. Well, Suddenly, a Come new on, opportunity shows itself in the form of the non-couple farm structure. Woohoo! Represent. Yeah. Tell us about it, Molly. I think it's really important to have some serious meetings with people that you are thinking of farming with. And I think that you can, it's all about scale, but I would not, I think you can go out on your own and make it happen. You know, you can do a high value thing. You don't want to break your back, but you could start off on your own for sure. Uh, if, you're, if you want to start with a crew of folks who are interested one thing that was huge for us is for at least almost two years before we even found land, we met in a very formal way. We were all kind of working other jobs and had this vision, and we would have these, like, farm, we called them the dream farm meetings. We would meet and we would dream, and someone was on business. Like we had this sort of, we started developing this professional structure. Even though we're very close friends, it was really significant to have a start developing our relationship as, as work partners. And, you know, we were able to, like, work through a lot of stuff. And so then when we started our farm, when we were just, like, so busy, you can't even, you know, find time to eat, you, we, could, we still knew how to, like, deal with each other in sort of a, a more of a business way. Of course, it's, it's not anywhere near, like, a professional setting like I've been in before. It's very intimate, and that's part of what I love so much about it is that you're very, it's very holistic, you're a whole person. You don't have to turn off your home person to be your work person. You're, like, just your person. So, but we had this great model. So I'd say for people starting, you know, 
get to know your folks well. We did this thing. We answered. We had a list of questions, like make or break questions. Like let's answer the big questions before we even go into things so that in half, six months down the road when some big issue comes up, we've already like sort of started talking about those things. So it was everything well, Did you have like, a template for that or did you have like really involved elders or did you read a book? trying to think. I think there was some online research, and I think there was also just the benefit of, like, yeah, I mean, there were some great models that we looked at and that people that we talked to who had gone into business with friends, and um, I can't remember who thought of that one. I mean, part of the benefit of going in on it with a few people is that, you know, three three people make a genius, right? So we just, like, there was a lot of... Uh, great brainstorming and problem-solving and strategizing. So someone had that good idea, and it was a really good idea. I hadn't even sat down to think of it. You know what? I'm Now I'm thinking there's maybe an online, like the Small Farm Resource Center or something. I think it's an East Coast thing, but they had a really helpful website. There's uh, a small farm. There's a New England Small Farm Institute. I'm trying to think what it is. I should Maybe I'll try and look it up. Okay, um, well, when there are some resources out there, we'll just start delving into up. starting a small farm. You'll find good stuff to help you, help guide you. Um, well, okay, and the whole thing about starting two years out, you know, that's another part. And, like, my own farm plan is described in phases. Of course, yep. I don't usually describe anything I do in terms of phases, but here I am phasing it out. <laughs> and and it's make, it really forces you to think ahead about your community. And, you know, and, like, sh- and also what I'm noticing is, I mean, I show up for a lot of stuff anyway, but, Sometimes you're kind of like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy this quiet afternoon. I'm not going to go show up at the community event. Well, it turns out you really should show up at the community event because those are going to be your buyers. Totally. And those are the your people you need to be your champions. And it, it's an amazing, te- you know, kind of theoretical kick in the butt when you, like, force yourself to have that discipline and, and consider things a little bit strategically. Absolutely. And your neighbors and your UPS driver and the guy who sweeps the floor at the post office. I mean, it's just amazing who is out there and who is going to be a resource to you. Yeah, and who's on and, and, uh, and who it's worth not alienating <laughs> on yeah. the flip side. Yeah, try not to alienate anybody. That's my advice. <laughs> yeah, if your business you is going to stay in one yourself. place, then maybe it's a good idea to make friends with most people that you come across in that place. Totally. And it's daunting. It can be hard. I mean, I'm definitely an urban transplant, and it was a little bit scary for me to do that, but I felt like the city was not the right place for me, and it takes a long time to build a community, but it happens, and it's fun. And uh, But everything always, takes a long time. Sure does. Phasing I'm, in a farm takes a long time. So phases are important. You know, plan it out. Plan out your three-year. Plan out your five-year. Plan out your ten-year. Uh Plan out your one month, two months. I like plan it out. Write it all down on paper because that will it will. And you don't have to necessarily do everything you write down on paper, but it's a great. It's great to have some guidelines. Totally. Some well, it's so funny because I'm over here. I'm actually at my friend Sean's farm. Uh, Sean Stanton. He runs North Plain Farm. He does pastured chickens and raw milk and beef, and he does. He has horses, uh, and he was like. I was talking about, well, you know, we really need a Young Farmer Credit Union. He was like, we need a Young Farmer Retirement Fund. <laughs> you know, because he's it's July and he's tired and he's like, you know, I'm not saving enough money. Yeah. And 
And I, so it's funny. I, I, once you start thinking long term, it's like you start thinking really long term. Yeah, it's important. I mean, that should all be part of a business plan, you know, and and those goals for sure. And it's tough because it's the margins are slim in the beginning for sure. But um, I think it it's really possible to build a sustainable a sustainable long term business. You gotta be creative. You gotta really be creative. There's some really great resources out there. I know, like, California FarmLink has um, a match savings program. And, um, yeah, I mean, small, young beginner farmers in general, we just need some more support out there from because we need the farmers, we need the food, so let's put our money where our mouth is and get some support for young beginner farmers. Seriously. Not necessarily young. I think beginner farmers, you could be a beginner farmer and not be necessarily young. But, uh well, yeah, we and need we federally, just lost we need a billion dollars bill, of we need it locally. Um, conservation funding that included EQIP in the yeah. last appropriations meeting. Um, you know, this farm bill is going to be a really big fight to keep even, you know, even programs that have been on the books for a long time, even like SARE, you know, is and ATRA are fighting to stay alive at all. Uh, so, you know, like when you start talking about newer programs and, you know, beginning farmer and development project and the FSA loans and stuff. Like, there's no assurance that that stuff is going to stay. Right. And if we don't fight for it, probably won't. We really, everyone out there, we really need to fight for this stuff. We need to keep young farm, beginner farmer support, small farm support out there because it is vital. I mean, we can't and make in it exchange for your support, we will work outside every day. In exchange <laughs> and for your we will support, do it the rest we will, of our lives to grow yeah. for you. We will. We will Sounds do like it. A good we want right? to do it, but we need to be able to do it. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's inspiring. I think there's you know obviously there's not um, our our nation will come up with our own unique way of supporting beginner farmers, but there are some really great models I think in other countries that we could look at, and uh, little little steps are important. So I encourage people to learn more about the Farm Bill and, and how the Farm Bill can support beginner farmers and, and learn about local legislation, even urban legislation, you know, figure out how to get your city ordinances changed so people can grow food and sell food. And we've got to just work on getting food more in the control of our communities. And if, if Molly, I don't know if you know about this, but um, the National Young Farmer Coalition, we have a policy platform. Cool. And we have gone through and looked and itemized all the programs that are beneficial to beginning farmers and put them all down and described the, how they work. And that is, should be useful to you if you find yourself at an event with a congressman, particularly, or a congresswoman, uh, and particularly if they're on a ag committee. You know, you may want to just whip that right out and <laughs> hand it to them with a big smile. Um, and, uh, and that is fantastic, and that is very, very, a very useful thing to have. Yeah, and it's 37 pages. Wow, so I'll just carry one around with me all the time. <laughs> it's so convenient. Well, no, I, I, we ran out of time, but I, it's been such a great pleasure, and I, um, I can't wait to come up there. I, have some, I actually have a project idea, but I'll slam it to you, not on the air. Okay. And... <laughs> and <laughs> So will you give everyone your email thing again, your webinar? Yeah, email? so thank you, Severin. First of all, thanks for everything that you're doing to support beginner farmers. You're an inspiration to us all, and you're helping connect us to each other, which is very important. 
Uh, so if people want to know more about Dinner Bell Farm, they can find us at dinnerbellfarm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dinner Bell Farm. Wow. Zuba Zuba, new media. All new you media, media people out there, listen up. There's a lot of new media for the young farmers. Uh, we have many, many screenings of our documentary coming up. I think there's like six of them in the rest of this month. You just go on Greenhorns, send it for the mailing list, and we will send it out to you. And, uh, you know, get, get onto your local elected officials' website. They will invite you to town hall meetings, and you can call up, and you can make a fuss when they vote the wrong way on rules that you know of and care about. And I, I'll tell you something. We just had a big event up in Essex, New York, at Essex Farm. Uh, down the road, there's a green hall. And we've had wonderful puppet show and spit-roasted pig and awesome bands and oxen driving workshop, all this one stuff. But the point of it is we had a room full of strong, confident, small business people, a.k.a. farmers. And the congressman came in there, and he was blown away. Uh, you know, he was impressed with the people. Like, he, he it made a really big impression on him because uh, because we're all people of action, and he could feel that. So I think, a lot of, I think a lot of us underestimate how much our voice matters. And, you know, if all you can do is click a mouse, well, that's one thing. But if you can show up um, and bring your physical charisma up into their presence, that makes a huge impression. So... Hurrah, hurrah. Thanks for listening. Thanks to you, Hearst Rand. Thank you, Heritage Radio. Thank you for farming. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's a lot of posturing and talking around raw milk these days and how great it is. But if you really want to get a full-on investigation into the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of raw milk consumption, here's a nifty website, www.realrawmilkfacts.com. It has a laundry list of FAQs, along with information from studies and reports from American and European science communities. If you flirt with raw milk consumption, this is definitely worth taking a look at. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to cull the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October.